Morning, Grace. So those of you who uh, noticed it, Mel took some time off from worship leading, and is it good to have her back? Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Mel. Hey, uh, we are in the beginning of the Lenten season. It started Wednesday, and uh, we just encourage you to participate with us. And one of the ways you can do that is by using the link guide. This is really just a devotional. Uh, there's places in there to you, for you to what to read and then what to fill in. Uh, we made a lot of these for you, and there's quite a few still left, and they happen to say 2019, which means they won't be much good next year. So if you need one, please take one. They're free, uh, but it's great devotional in there. It also tells you a little bit about all the things we're doing, one of which is that we open the chapel uh, every morning, weekday morning from 6.30 to 8.30, uh, just for a time of quiet reflection, prayer, whatever you want. Uh, so we have people that show up for 10 minutes. We have people that show up for an hour. Um, I've been uh, there for the duration, which I love. It's been something we've been doing for the last few years, and it's just a very sacred time. So just encourage you, maybe on your way to work or on your way home from work, if you work nights, stopping into the chapel. And if you want prayer, just uh, kind of wave to me or wave me over, and I'd love to come uh, pray with you. Most people just kind of do their own thing, do their devotional, sit quietly and with the Lord. So uh, grab one of these. They're literally all over the place out there. There's some by the back doors or some at the information counter. Um, but love to get these into your hands and use them. I hope that you're excited about the remix study. Uh, I know that I've really enjoyed uh, my group. I hope your group is going as well, uh, going well also. I want to just encourage you that if you're still looking to get in a group, just go to the website, go to C Group Finder, and uh, that'll let you know. If you can find a group on there, it means the group still has openings. And if you click on it, it'll take you right to the leader, and you can get connected that way. Um, I would like to tell you that I'm sorry about the social media thing. I didn't realize that's such a huge way that we communicate with you. So if you have no idea what's going on, um, sorry. <laughs> I didn't think that one through very well. We need, a, we need a special social media that's just grace only. But uh, just encourage you to go on the website, whatever you need to do. Just know that there's lots of stuff going on around here. You can talk to any of us at work here, and we can help you as well. Uh, today we're going to look at a, a story, and I think it's probably, maybe, one of the most familiar stories in Scripture. And my hope and prayer this week has been that this story would land on you in a, in a new way, that you would hear it uh, in a new way. So grab your Bibles, readers, whatever you use to, when you come in, we encourage you to bring a Bible. If you're using the Bible in your seat, turn to Genesis chapter 3, so right in the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, we want to encourage you during the season to bring your remix books. There's places in there for you to take notes, so we're on page 40, if you are taking notes in your book. And uh, the danger comes when a story becomes so familiar, we stop being in awe. We stop, uh, it kind of loses its awe factor, and we're not amazed by it anymore. And I say this all the time, but I say familiarity breeds complacency. And what you need to know is complacency is a cancer to spiritual growth. And uh, I want to explain it a little different way, because I think it's really important that we hold on to this. But have you ever traveled somewhere where the landscape uh, is just breathtaking? That was one of the things that just stood out to me the most when we were in Ireland uh, last summer. It just, every place you went, it was just stunning, and you were so in awe of the, of the landscape. You ever been someplace like that? Just, you couldn't take your eyes off of the beauty? Uh, I remember when I was in my 20s, I had just graduated from college and begun my business career, and the business that I worked for, our home offices were in Santa Barbara, California, a great place for home offices, um, but I remember the first time I went there, 
Uh, first time I'd ever been in California. I grew up in Florida. Uh, California and Florida are very different. One is flat and one, the other one is not flat. And I just remember standing on the beach and looking at the mountains and just being so in awe. Like I'd never been anywhere where you could be in both places. I'd been to mountains and I'd been to beaches, but never in the, in the same place at the same time. It was just, it was incredibly moving. But on that particular trip, we played a golf course. The golf course is called Sandpiper. It's right in uh, Santa Barbara, but this is an actual picture of the golf course. You can see it's just an amazing landscape, beaches, Pacific Ocean, greens that kind of jut out over the beach, just breathtaking. I had a hard time playing golf, partly because I'm not very good at golf, um, but also just because it was so distracting. But I remember the, the guys that I was playing with, they were friends of mine, and they lived in Santa Barbara. And uh, I would talk about, like, look at this, look at this. And they were sort of like, yeah, whatever. Let's just play some golf. They'd played that golf course so many times that it had just become familiar to them. Another way to think about what I'm talking about is, have you ever driven somewhere and there was a little sign that said, scenic lookout in two miles, scenic lookout one mile? Who stops at the scenic lookout? The tourists, right? You stop. Yeah, whoever we're driving along, we stop, we look, whether it's up north or wherever you're going, it's the tourists who stop. The locals have long since stopped pulling over and taking in the views. And the problem with that is it's still amazing. It's still beautiful. And the same is true for with a Bible story. Sometimes we need to slow down and we need to go to the scenic lookout and we need to look at the story as if we've never heard it before. Because as we hear it and hear it here, it becomes familiar and that familiarity makes the story very complacent in our spirit. So this is the story of creation. Adam and Eve, you know, the serpent, the, the apple, which wasn't really an apple, but that's kind of the bad for the apples, I guess. We got everything named after apples, but, but we've heard it hundreds of times. Even if you haven't heard the story hundreds of times, the story is so iconic, you probably know most of the details of the story. But we're going to tell it in a way and invite you into uh, an opportunity just to see it anew and to be amazed by the story. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and was also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Shifting blame right away. The Lord said to the woman, what have you done? And she said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. She shifts the blame as well. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he 
will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that in these next few minutes, this uh, familiar story, this iconic story uh, would become anew for us. I pray that seeds of truth would go forth, that they'd land in fertile soil, that they would go deep with roots and they would bear fruit a hundredfold. We pray today the prayer that we've prayed for five or six years here, that we would leave different than we came because we've interacted with the living God. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen? So the first thing that we need to understand when we read this story is this is not an allegory. This is not a fairy tale. This is, is a story uh, that, that isn't made up to, to make a point. And that is sort of the direction that modern people are, are our time are looking at the scriptures and saying a lot of the Old Testament, they're just allegories. They're just stories to help us understand something. But this is not a parable. This is not a fairy tale. This is not an allegory. And this is an incredibly important place for us to stop. This is an important place for us to pull over, if you will, to the scenic lookout and think about the story in a new way. We know that it's not an allegory because Adam is part of the lineage of Jesus. When you go to, the, to Luke, it talks about the genealogy all the way back to Adam, and one cannot descend from an allegory. It just doesn't work that way. We also know that it's not a fable because Paul, in his writings, especially in Romans, begins to compare the first Adam with the second Adam. He's talking about the first Adam being Adam, who we're talking about, the second Adam being Jesus, and he talks about how they are alike. He says they were both human, right? And he, he brings into it that this problem we have with sin is a human condition, so it took Jesus, who was both human and God, to, to come into it. And, and it. But it, like, unlike other places in the Bible where people are compared to Jesus, in this case, the only comparison is they are both human, but after that, Paul talks about how they're different. One sinned, and the other one without sin. One brought death, the other one brought life. So what, what I want you to hold on to as we start is just that realization that this is not an allegory. This is a historical story that Adam and Eve are as real as Abraham Lincoln and exist in history. They are historical figures. And we can also agree that this is not a normal story. Nothing like this has happened since. Nothing like this will happen again. As a matter of fact, if you had had the opportunity to watch the story unfold, right? If you had been standing there watching a talking snake and two naked people have a conversation and you went to your friends and said, you'll never guess what I saw today, you probably would be committed to some special place for people who see crazy things, right? It is a crazy story to wrap our minds around, but it's a historical event. And the story has these, these characters in it, these main characters, a serpent, Adam, Eve, God. And what I want to do is kind of invite you into the story and into these characters. So let's start where the story starts in verse 1. Genesis 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. And the problem with this story is it starts with an incredible leap of faith, a talking snake. Right? And what we do know, because we have the rest of Scripture and, and all of this, is the snake is, is the devil, right? 
And so we have to answer a question, well, well, who is the devil? Who is this talking snake? Where did he come from? What's, what's behind it? And, and Satan is a spiritual being. According to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 14, it says, For you, Satan, have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, and I will be like the most high. Notice that this is in quotation marks, that this is the, the words of Satan, that he's, a, he's an angel, a beautiful angel, but he desires to ascend. And notice where it ends. It ends with these words, I will be like the most high God. I will be like God. Now, hopefully you still have Genesis open. If you don't, just keep it open because we're gonna keep going back to it. Genesis 3, verse five. Satan is talking to the man and the woman and what does he say to them? He says to them, for, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The fall of Satan and the fall of man are both rooted in this desire to be like God instead of worshiping God instead of following God. To be like God is the heart of all of our sin. God says to you and me, worship me. Draw your very identity from me. Follow my ways. Follow my statutes. Follow what I ask you to do. Walk with me. And he says to each of us, here's a path, and this path leads to life. But then we decide we don't want that path. We want to make our own decisions. We want to be worshipped. We want to do things the way we want to do things. We're headstrong. We're stiff-necked. And we think we know what's best for us. And in that moment, we want to be our own God. Or, even more disastrous, we want to be worshipped by others. And when we do, we bring pain and torment into our lives. So here's the battle to make it personal and, and how it works for me. There are times where it's great, but there's other times where, where when I'm coming up here, I want to impress you. I want you to say, oh, that was really great. Oh, Doug, you did a great job. In those moments where I want you to see me, I want to be like God. Right? So we all have those moments in our insecurities where we, where we want to be seen, where we want to be noticed in an unhealthy sort of way. In those moments, we want to be like God. So here's the question for you to ponder as we continue through the story. Where in your life are you desiring to be God? Now, now I just want you to capture this. There's a difference between our mission statement, which is we are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus and being like God. Living like Jesus is modeling our lives in such a way that we are doing the things that Jesus did for the very purpose of reflecting the image of God, not being God. So when we say live like Jesus, it's different than saying be Jesus, right? Or being God. So that's very different. But where in your life are you trying to be like God? Satan. He's a fallen angel and he, he wants to be to come in and to create havoc, right? And, and the scriptures say that he was thrown down to earth and that he was made a, a spectacle. And because he's a spiritual being, the, the, the whole snake thing was nothing more than just a means for him to communicate, right? So he's a spiritual being. He needs a way to talk. And so uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, says, let us therefore establish in the first place that the serpent is a real serpent, but that he has been entered and taken over by Satan. So that's really all there is behind the, the snake. Verse, tells, tells, verse one also tells us that Satan is crafty. 
says he was crafty, but I think it would be better if it said he is crafty because he still exists and he's still crafty. And, and he has his way of twisting truth and making truth seem palatable to us. Somehow he can make truth be wrapped in untruth and somehow it's pleasant to us and wanting to move forward. He is the father of lies. He has this knack for tricking us. And one of his tricks is to wrap a lie in a truth. So look at verse four. He says to the man and the woman, you will not certainly die. Death was not a part of the equation. We have to do a, a funeral tomorrow, and the one thing I'll say at the beginning is we were not designed to even understand or experience death. If you ever go to a funeral and you feel like this is wrong, it's because it's wrong. We were not designed to experience death. So, so what we know is the fall brought death into the equation. And maybe he was saying, you're not going to die in the moment, but they eventually died. So he says, you will not die. That's a lie. And then he says, for God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Guess what? They did in the moment that they ate, eat it, knew something that God knew about good and evil. It was a truth wrapped and a lie. All of the cults, all of the, if you just think about this one thing I'm talking about, the truth wrapped in a lie, all of these, these people are led astray from true Orthodox Christianity by taking the scriptures and skewing them just enough that it still seems almost right, but as you follow that, it takes you completely away from the person and the salvation of Jesus himself. This is Satan's scheme, to wrap a truth in a lie and somehow make the lie seem palatable, seem good to us. As followers of Christ, Satan's first desire is for you to never be in the word. If I can keep you from the Bible, great. That's what Satan wants, right? But if you decide you're going to study the word, if you're going to do the Lent guide and you're going to read all those passages of scripture, his next is I say, well, if you're going to study it, I'm going to try to get you to hear something and to move in a way that is askew from what it's actually saying. You just need to know this is his scheme. So that's why it's so important. I say it all the time. Context matter. Nothing more dangerous than taking a passage of scripture out of context to make the point that you wanted to make when it was never intended to mean what you're trying to make it mean. And so we just have to be careful. Let scripture interpret scripture. Let the traditions and the things that we know to be true help bring us together. And allow one another to speak truth. Test everything and hold on to the good. So he wants to twist the scriptures. Think about this. He did it with Adam and Eve, the first Adam, and he did it with the second Adam. What does Satan do in the desert? He quotes scripture to Jesus. And how did Jesus fight him? He quotes scripture to Satan. Good thing that Jesus knew the scriptures better than Satan knew the scriptures, right? But just don't mess up here. Satan knows the word of God, and he will use the word of God to get you askew. So you better know it better. You better have people around you that can help point you in the right way. Verse six tells us that Adam and Eve were together in the garden. They were listening to the serpent together. And what they needed to do was they needed to stop. They needed to not be impulsive. And they needed to talk this through. They needed to ask each other some questions. What is it that God really said? Who should we trust? What's really truth here? 
I have to believe that there was a check in their spirit. God gave them a conscience just like he's given us a conscience. There's a talking snake. Come on, something must have been a little bit askew in this whole situation. I don't believe that they could have moved through this whole thing without feeling a little bit of a check in their spirit. And when you feel that check in your spirit, you need to slow down and you need to go into the scriptures and you need to ask people that you can trust to come alongside you. You need to test everything and and hang on to the good. Maybe if they'd have just said to themselves, should we listen to a talking snake? everything would have changed. Well, just for the record, if a snake is talking to you, don't do what it says. Right? Instead of, instead of the temptation that brought, brought them down, they would, have, they would have come out a different way. And we're really no different. We need to just slow down. We need to ask for wisdom as we, as we have situations in front of us, decisions in front of us. I want to talk a little bit about what it must have been like in the garden for Adam and Eve. What, what was it really like for the first couple? Well, for one thing, it was perfect. There was no death, as we talked about. There were no storms. There were no earthquakes. There were no 30-mile-an-hour uh, winds out there that were causing havoc. The, the earth was, in all of its habitants, inhabitants, were at peace with one another. It was actually a perfect relational environment, both with the animals, with men, that people related perfectly with one another. The relationship was God. It's all perfect. It's beautiful, right? Environmentally and relationally, a perfect paradise. It was a perfect temperature. It was San Diego 24-7, you know, that perfect. It wasn't cold. They were naked, so I'm pretty sure it was warmer than it is right now outside, right? So it's just perfect. And you ever wonder, like, what did they do? Like, did they just wander around in happy bliss because they had all this perfection? No, they actually worked, And that's a crazy thing because when we hear the word work, we have a heavy sigh, but their work was life-giving. It was joy-giving. The ground watered itself. The plants grew. There were no thorns, no thistles, no no having to work through the the elements that are destroying the crops. So the the work that they did was was life-giving. And they were designed to do work. You were designed to do work. You were designed to stay busy and stay productive. But have you ever had a perfect day at work? Have you ever gone to work and everybody got along perfectly? There was no strife. There was nothing. The the copy machine didn't break down. You know, the phone system worked perfect. There was absolute, this was the perfect day. Nothing, and most of you are saying, no, I've never had a day like that. Well, guess what? Neither have I. That's the difference between Adam's work and our work. So if you look at the passage, go to verse 17 through 19. It says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. We live in a fallen world, and work is work. We have to work to make things come together. It's part of the fall. But before the fall, it was perfection. The work was nothing but life-giving, and everything happened. So, Adam and Eve work, the work is fun, it gives them life, and, and each day as the work was winding down, as the sun was setting, and it was the cool of the evening, God would come, and he would walk through the garden. They would hear his footsteps, and no doubt in my mind, they would run to him with high anticipation because they wanted to hang out with him. They lived without any curtains, no shame, no guilt, no feelings of inadequacy, total access to God. Life was perfect. But in the midst of perfection, they were ungrateful, right? They wanted more. It's not enough. Perfection wasn't enough. They wanted to be like God. 
instead of worshiping God and following God. And in that moment, shame and guilt enters the world. And, and in their sin and their shame, they sew fig leaves together and they begin to hide. They put up their own curtains. God exists in perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Such beautiful community that he says, let's create man, invite him to experience this community that we have. And so Adam and Eve had the opportunity to share in the community of the God-given Trinity, but it wasn't enough. They reject God. They shove all of that back in God's face. And they say, it's not enough. We want more. We want to be like God. They violate the very covenant that God established with them. And the question is, are we so different? And the other question we need to wrestle with and see in the story is, how does God respond? How would you respond? When you give somebody everything you have, when you pour out something for them, when you, when you give to, whether it's a, a child or a spouse or, or, or a neighbor or somebody, and you, and you really go out of your way to serve them, to love them, to give them what they need in order to, to thrive, you really go completely out of your way to, to do something, and what they show you back is just total ingratitude, and they shove it in your face. Do you respond with anger and rage and lectures? Do you divorce? Do you unfriend them once Lent is over? Sorry. Do you write people off? How does God respond? In our story, how does God respond? Think about it. The earth doesn't shake. Darkness doesn't fill the sky. It doesn't thunder from heaven in a loud voice. There's no yelling. There's no rage. It doesn't strike them down with lightning. He doesn't tower over them and yell, after all I've done for you. Can I tell you that when you hear those words in your spirit, after all I've done from you, it is never from the spirit of God. Oh, I felt it. I felt it with my kids. I felt it with my spouse. I felt it with coworkers where I think I've been so sacrificial after all I've done for you. But not God. In the midst of the hurt and the intense rejection, God responds. Look at verse 8. The man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He shows up in the same way he has evenings past, walking through the garden, looking for his kids. I want you to just listen for a moment, and I want you to engage your imagination. Enter into the story as I tell the story in a new sort of way. This is a poem that I wrote a few years ago. It's called Adam's Song. Adam's Song, Our Song. In the cool of the evening, when the day's work is done, God comes and you hear his footsteps. In times past, you were like a child running to him. Dad has finally come home. So many times before you heard him in excitement and in anticipation, your, your heart skipped a beat. But this time he comes. This time he comes, walking through the garden. You hear his footsteps. You hear his voice. Still so gentle. 
still so inviting. But this time, this time fear overtakes you and shame consumes you and guilt overwhelms you. You run, you hide, as if the God of the universe cannot find you. Still you hide, and he comes, and he calls your name calls you out of hiding. No rage, no lecture, only love, only forgiveness. In the cool of the evening, you hear his steps, and he covers your shame. In the cool of the evening, you hear his steps, and he removes your fear. In the cool of the evening, you hear his steps, and he wraps you with love. In the cool of the evening, you hear his steps, and he restores your wounded heart. In the cool of the evening, your dad has come. When you stop and you read the story, you notice that God's response, there's no screaming, there's no rage, there's no thunder, there's no lightning. He's not wagging his finger saying, after all I've done for you, He's walking in the cool of the day and he calls out Adam's name and he says, where are you? He knows exactly where Adam is. He's not confused. He's giving Adam this opportunity. It's an invitation to become introspective. He's asking, why are you hiding? Where are you, my son? And in that moment, Adam models this level of self-awareness that we can all learn from. He says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid, so I hid. He identifies a deep emotion, and then he identifies the behavior. Our emotions and our behaviors are always linked together. And God is inviting us to see to understand how we are feeling and how that is causing us to behave. He's calling our name and inviting us to grow. This is the very heart of spiritual and emotional maturity, to know what you're feeling and to know what it's causing you to do. Sometimes they're destructive behaviors. Sometimes they're not destructive. Sometimes you hear or you're feeling joyous because good things are happening and you're worshiping, but other times it drives us towards sin. Someone loves you unexpectedly and suddenly you feel secure and you're able to take a risk. The question is, are you willing to pull back the curtain and allow God, allow him to, to shine his light and show you what you need to see, to be honest with God, to be honest with one another, to enter a season of healing and victory. I had this uh, revelation. Can you, Rachel, will you bring me Clyde? Or Robbie, I don't care who brings him up. This is my grandbaby, Clyde. And uh, while we were worshiping, I was thinking about if Clyde wandered off. Hey, buddy. What is going on? Just think about this. If Clyde wandered off today, then we would do everything to find him. 
we would chase him, we would search for him. Right? We would do everything to bring him home. Do you know that's how your daddy feels about you? He will go to any length to find you, to restore you, and to bring you home. And some of you think you've done too much. You're like, go find daddy. <laughs> you can go get him. He's not sure. <laughs> go this way. You can <laughs> preach later. Thank you. God's coming, not with a hammer, but with an invitation. He's just inviting you to come home. And my encouragement to you today is to do just that. Lord, I just pray that um, we would realize how much you love us as an Abba Father. So much that you sent your only son to die on a cross so that we could have reconciliation with you. You went the distance to find us and bring us home. You're still walking through the garden, calling our name, inviting us back to you. Thank you that we have total access to you. Thank you that you love us more than we love little Claude. Lord, help us to walk faithfully with you. I pray for the people who are struggling this morning to accept the truth that you love them. I pray that they would come down and just let us pray over them at the end of the service here. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you need something spiritually, physically, if you have an ailment, uh, we would love to pray for you. We have some wonderful prayer people. Uh, if you just feel like you need to find your way back to Jesus, there's people down here that would love to talk with you and pray over you in that regard as well. Have a great afternoon. God bless you.